Oh, that's good. Everybody good? Everybody ready? All right. Isaiah is just wound up and waiting for us. So if we can remember, I just want to try to keep us reminded on where we come from, where we're going. Isaiah, we begin with the concept of the failure of mankind, how mankind falls short, and what they should be and what they are, and the difference between that. And when we get to chapter 6, Isaiah tells us, basically, how does how it, how do I go from who I am to who I ought to be? And that happens in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah saw the Lord, right? And his train filled the temple, and Isaiah declared before the Lord, I'm broke. And God touched him. That's how it happens. For everybody since Isaiah's time till today. How do I become the man, or, or how do I become the person I need to be? I surrender my life to Christ. I surrender my life to the Lord. He touches me, and he then equips me to be his tool. Right? The next thing that happens is God says, well, who will go for us to the people? And Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. Then immediately he moves, chapter 7, to this idea that there's a son coming. A child's going to be born. A son, there's a picture of Messiah coming, who's going to do for the nation, or for the nations, for the world, the same thing that happens individually for Isaiah. That one day they're going to put upon his shoulders the government of the world, right? That starts this this promise of a child in chapter 7, all the way through chapter 12. You have this promise of the coming child, he's going to come, he's going to deliver. We see... uh, Pictures of the kingdom and all that leading up to that. Chapter 13 to 23, you have what's called the Oracle of the Nations. Remember, we talked about this. Every prophet did one. Every prophet said, basically, the point of the Oracle of the Nations is, uh, if I did it short, uh, everybody's a mess, so stop hoping that they're going to be able to help you. They need as much help as you do. Right? So don't run to Egypt for help. Don't run to Babylon for help. Don't run to... Whoever you're thinking about running to for help, instead run to God. Because all the way up to the midway point, to about chapter 39 of Isaiah, we're setting the stage. Remember, for the first half of Isaiah, the bad guy's Assyria. For the last half of Isaiah, the bad guy's Babylon. So when Assyria comes to Judah, Israel's already fallen. They've already, they trusted in other nations, and the other nations couldn't deliver them. They fell under Assyrian, under the Assyrian charge. And when we get to about chapter 35, we're going to see the Assyrians show up outside the gate of Judah. And God, all the way up to that point, is saying, if you'll trust me instead of the nations, I'll deliver you. So we're going to get to read about God's deliverance of them from the Assyrian army. What that bought them was a reprieve, roughly a 150-year reprieve until Babylon. It gave them opportunity, right? It's opportunity. Every time God gives us a reprieve, every time he, he withholds judgment or brings us to the place of repentance, that's a reprieve, right? We, we haven't got what we deserve. And we have an opportunity now to say, now I'm going I'm, I'm to change my direction. I'm, I'm going to get my life right. And for the nation of Israel, they, they, off and on, they have good and bad times for the next 150 years until they end up in captivity in Babylon. And that's Isaiah the prophet. That's what his focus is on. We get to the last half of the book of Isaiah. Here's what Isaiah is going to start talking about. You remember the child? 
Remember the child deliverer, the king that's coming? The second half of Isaiah, he says he's going to be a suffering servant. He's going to die for the people's sins. So the problem, he gets them to deliverance. They have repentance, reprieve, moving forward. But they're still going to find themselves, um, you know, making the choices that, that cause God to bring judgment. Look, the Bible's really clear, guys. So I, I, don't, I don't know if this spooks you or not. But the Bible is very clear that God will judge a nation for innocent blood. And you got a ton of innocent blood here. Whatever we think they were guilty of, yeah, we're not only are we guilty of it, we, we support it all the way around the world. So, and that's not the only thing that's innocent blood, right? The, the death of the preborn. But uh, you, you have, if it's true, I, I haven't confirmed it's true, that New York is now uh, considering uh, abortion all the way to birth. So I don't know if it's real. I, I see it on Facebook. That's why I say I don't know if it's real. Because Facebook is about scary. I don't know. If I, every time I say, if I say I saw it on Facebook, immediately I go, well. <laughs> I also see aliens and a lot of things on Facebook. And I don't know if those are true. So Was it on the news? Okay, so, so when, when I see stuff like that, I'm like, man, that's, that's scary. That's a scary place to be. And God declares all through the Old Testament and the New that, that, that the blood of the innocent cries out to God. Right? In Genesis, we read about one murder. You remember? Cain and Abel. And, and how many murders had to happen before the blood of Abel cried out to God? One. And you have, up to today, somewhere in the neighborhood of 61 million. So, that's, that's quite a bit larger than one. And the debauchery just gets worse, you know. It's it's not shocking, but it's, you know, that's kind of the direction as a nation that we go. Once you once you let go of the meaning of life, what's the meaning of life? We're all we're all uh, uh, our nation is a nation of of nihilists, you know. Life has no meaning. So if life has no meaning, who cares what you do? And really, that's what you see kind of across the board. With our nation. So if God had to judge Israel, is my point, he's going to have to. The judgment day, payday will come. I promise. You know, how many times have you ever done something and you didn't get caught for it, so you thought you could do it over and over again? Yeah, I know I have. It's like, yeah, I could pass my hand through the fire and it didn't burn me. And then I passed my hand through the fire and it didn't burn me. And you slow down, speed up. Maybe you jump over it, but sooner or later, the fire gets his pay. Yeah, you've been playing. you got to pass. But the Bible says, God is not slack concerning his promises. And not all his promises are for salvation. Some of those promises are for judgment. So you have that. Uh, Israel's facing that. Judah's facing that. But at the second half of Isaiah, you're going to start seeing the promises of the deliverer who's going to purge his people from their sin, that the, the thing that stops them from being able to continue in the, in the direction that God wants them to walk in, God's going to circumvent through the blood of his son, right? He's going to wash them, wash people who put their faith in Christ, he's going to wash them whiter than snow, and he's going to give them what? Holy Spirit. That's a big deal, right? 
He's going to give them the Holy Spirit so that they can overcome. So, last time we saw in chapter 24, the little mini-apocalypse, God's judgment of the whole earth. We know, like what we're talking about, judgment day someday, it's going to come. In chapter 25, you have the feast. Now, in Revelation, you have the same thing, right? What happens after Armageddon? What happens after Revelation 19? You have the feast, marriage supper of the Lamb. Old Testament saints, they're together with the... with the New Testament bride, the bride of Christ, gathered there, uh, having the marriage supper of the feast. You got two, you got two dinners. One is a good one, the other one is a bad one. The first dinner, marriage supper of the Lamb, that's a that's a feast for those who have been redeemed. The supper of the great God is when you're the meal. That's the time when God calls all the carrion birds and says, "Hey, come feast on the flesh of men." So they're you know, speaking of that period of judgment. So here in chapter 25, you have the same thing. You have a concept of a feast and the same uh, dichotomy. You have the idea of the the redeemed and the judged. And you, that's always going to be part of the picture, right? God, God's purpose is not to, to judge everyone so that all is all life is destroyed, right? God wants to redeem. You get to pick which supper you're going to. Whether you're the feast or you're a part of the feast. But, but that's our choice. So we have this feast in Isaiah 25.1. He says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. Plans from of old. Faithful and sure. So there's a lot of things just in that verse that we want to see. Things that remind us of who God is and what he can do. And one of the first things that jumps off is this relationship with God, right? The essential relationship. Oh Lord, you are my God. After seeing the judgment, right, of the world, and a lot of times people have a hard time doing this. You know, when the Bible says you are my God, it's like saying to God, uh, you're mine and, and I like you how you are. A lot of people have a hard time with that. They don't like God, the God who is. They like the God that they'd like to put in their pocket. The God they can put in a box. The God who does things their way. But this declaration is a declaration that says, God, I like you. I, 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 you're my God just the way you are. Uh, you're my God, the God who seems angry. The God who brings judgment. The God who is just. The God who is wrath. You're my God. The God who says he is jealous. You're my God. Same God who says he's love. Same God who says he's mercy. This is a declaration. You're mine. I want you. Just like David the psalmist would say in the 23rd Psalm, right? What did he say? The Lord is my shepherd. It's the same thing, right? God, you're mine. Uh, Just like you are. Was David's life perfect? Did his brothers all love him? I don't know, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. All I know is when the prophet came to their house, nobody invited David. Don't tell David. He smells funny and he's a little weird. He's always singing them goofy songs he writes. So we're going to leave him out with the sheep, right? Samuel the prophet comes, he says to Jesse, after he looks at all his sons, don't you have another son? Oh yeah, but he's the runt. He's wild crazy hair he, he you never really know what he's going to do with it he just lives out there with the sheep yeah bring them and it just turns out that's the one god chose right 
Because what is it that the Lord said to Samuel the prophet? God sees what? Yeah, God sees the heart. Men judge from the outside. God, he sees the heart. But David would say, you're my God. Even though that's my life. You're my God. The Lord is my shepherd. The next thing we see in verse 1 is the exaltation of God. What's he say? He says, not only are you my God, he says, I will exalt you, extol you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shout your name from the highest heights. This is a declaration of, man, I want to lift you up. That's what the Hebrew word means. I want to lift you up, God. I want people to see you. I want people to see you. And so Psalm 18:46 says, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. Lift it up on high. The Lord said, if I'm lifted up, what will he do? I'll draw all men to myself. So we need to be men and women that are exalting the Lord, no? If we lift him up, he'll draw men to himself. Psalm 21, 13 says, be exalted, O Lord. In your strength, we will sing and praise your power. He's God. It really don't matter if you like it. Uh, he's, he's either God, period, or he's not, period. But if he's God, period, then it don't matter. It don't matter if you go, well, Lord, what was the deal with the uh, tsunami or why do kids starve and why do all these things happen? None of that matters. If he's God, he's God. I, I'm going to trust in the goodness of God even if I don't understand it. Because I happen to know that my reasoning is not quite on par with God's. It's yours? According to Isaiah 55, what's he say? The Lord says, my ways are what? Higher. Beyond your ability to find out. So we really shouldn't struggle with that, should we? We should be able to exalt the Lord. You're my God. You're my God. I'll lift your name up. That's what he declares. And then he, he extols the attributes of God, right? The character, the abilities of God. He says, I will, pray your, I will praise your name. That's what that means. It means I'm gonna, not only am I going to extol you, lift you up, but I'm going to declare your character. That's the concept of, of your name, right? I, I want people to, to hear who you are. The Hebrew word is yada. Yada, I'm going to, I'm going to, I, w- I want people to know your name, God. So in Psalm 717, it says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness. I will sing praise to what? To the name of God, according to the character of God, by the attributes of God. Whenever we think about the attributes and character of God, we mess it up. Because if we were to draw a bar, if we were to take all the attributes of God and make like a bar of that attribute, we would have a tendency to put love on one side and justice on the other. We would put the the tendency to put wrath on one side and, and mercy on the other. So the attributes of God would be somewhere in the middle. But that's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says He's perfect wrath. And he's perfect love. Not like a five, a ten. You guys with me? He's not, he's not the middle between mercy and justice. He's all mercy and he's all justice. He is all the things that the word of God declares him to be all the time. So he says, I'm going to give thanks. I'm going to lift your name up. According, I'm going to praise the name of the Lord, the characteristics of God. 
as the Bible lays them out for us. Psalm 9.1 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds, all the stuff that God's done. There's a song, right, that, that tells us to count our blessings. You ever do that? You ever sit down and think in a day, in a moment, in an hour, all the good things God's given you? Another breath? Another day with grandkids? Another day with your own kids? Sunshine? Whatever. I mean, if you just sit down and want to ponder on the good things that God's given you in a day, you you ought to be able to find a reason to praise His name, His character, His goodness. Psalm 18.49 says, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. And sing to your name. They're singing that whole concept. Sing to your name. Sing according to your attributes, according to your character, who you are. And he says, I'm going to sing to the nations. The word for nations is goyim. Goyim. There's another way to say that. Gentile. You heard that word before, right? I'm going to sing. I'm going to, I want to let everybody know. I want to let everybody know who you are. Psalm 28, 7. It says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. I want to I wanna glorify, I want to praise his holy name. So we see at the beginning of this, we have the, this relationship. That you're my God. The exaltation. I want to lift you up. The extolling of who he is. I want to praise your name. The, then we see this exercise of his power for your wonderful works, for all the stuff you've done. I want to praise you for all the stuff you've done. And then also for his plans. Because it says what? Your plans were formed of old, faithful and sure. God's plans aren't wrong. And they will happen. So if God's word declares there's a judgment day someday, what can you take to the bank? There's a judgment day someday. That's why he would declare now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Should we wait? Should I wait till tomorrow to repent for something I know is wrong in my life today? Or should I go right now? You go to sleep tonight? Don't go to sleep. Yeah, say it. Get, that, get those things out so that, so that we can have the forgiveness that God trusts. Then we see... This song moving in verse 2 to remember the things that God does to the enemies of his people. Look what it says. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. What's he talking about? He's not naming a city, right? He's just talking about the city. And whenever they just give us an arbitrary, the city will be destroyed, the, the, the strong towers pulled down. It's just more uh, um, illustration of God pulling down the pride of man. Because every time man built a big city, he'd say, nobody can take this. And every time man said, nobody can take this, what would happen? Somebody takes it. Yeah, we should hear that in history when we as a nation say, nobody can take us. Oh, be careful. A lot of people said that before. And they all have one thing in common. They were all wrong. Yeah, somebody can take you. Somebody can do it. So he's saying, man, this city's going to be pulled down. The city's destroyed. A symbol of man's pride being brought low. What's the consequence of man's pride being brought low? That's what he says next. 
Therefore, strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. So they're going to be drawn to him. The, the remarkable thing about the book of Revelation and the judgments of God in that final day is over and over, Revelation will say, and man would not repent. Man would not repent. Man would not. That's what marks the final judgment from every other judgment. Because typically when that judgment comes, when man discovers he's not the end-all, be-all in his universe, he begins uh, with the fear of the Lord. He begins to glorify God. He begins to look to the one who is able. Why is he going to look to him? Because there's been a day of the vindication of his people. Until there's a time of the vindication of his people, the, the, the enemies of God don't really care. They just look and say, well, what's the big deal? Your people are just a mess. The people who go by your name, whether Christian or whether we're talking about Israel, doesn't make any difference. The world would say, what's the difference between a Christian and me? Nothing. They go through the same stuff I go through. What's the big deal? Until there's a vindication. There's a vindication talked about in Revelation. Revelation chapter 6. The martyrs underneath the throne, they cry out to God and they say, How long? How long, O God, until that day of vindication? Until you're going to set the scales right? How long until this is going to be put together? They say, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants should be complete who were to be killed as they were also. You want to know when it's complete? Revelation 7. Revelation 7 verse 9 says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, signifying that Jesus Christ is their King, and cried out with a long voice, uh, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. <clears throat> and all the angels standing around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, fall on their face and worship God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What brings about that song? Vindication. The day comes. God judges the people. They slaughtered my people, so I give them blood to drink. The judgments that God poured out on the world. And so that vindication brings praise from God's people. Praise from God's people because finally vindication has come. Not because God brings vindication every day. He doesn't, right? But he will. You can only stomp on God's kids so long. And then you wake the lion of the tribe of Judah. And anybody standing in front of a lion ain't as bold as they were a minute ago. So they, we have this idea, this conquest. They're saying to, to the people here in, uh, in Isaiah uh, from verse 3, that the strong people will glorify him. Why? Why? Listen to what he says. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a 
a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. So you have this picture. Three things that they lay out for him that God's been for him. A covering for his people. He's been their strong tower, their stronghold, right? The place where his people could find refuge. He's been their shelter, which is a refuge from the storm. Storm is the idea of chaos in the world. The strong tower is an idea of a place to flee when you're hunted by your enemies. And the shade, he's shade when it gets hot. He's the place where we can find relief. See, God can overcome the mighty just like a cloud overcomes the heat of a day by coming between the sun and us. God's like, hey, I can do that for my people. God interposes himself, puts himself between the helpless and the hopeless so that life can go on. And when he does it, when it happens... The mighty say, there he is. There he is. Problem is, when the mighty say, there he is, it's just about a day too late. It's too late then. It's too late after you've been conquered to say, oh, I was going to bow the knee, I just forgot. No, you're going to now. But you, it's too late for them. What will happen? The conquest will bring their silence. Look what he says. In, uh, in verse 5, it says, Like heat in the dry place, you will subdue the noise of the foreigner as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless will be put down. So all the rejoicing of the wicked, all those, that, that day will end. And when that day comes, the one thing that they're all going to have in common is silence. No more singing, no more boasting, no more talk. The conquest of God is going to subdue the noise of the foreigner and make the song of the ruthless be put down. Next thing we see that this deliverance is accomplishing is it reflects on God's promises. God's been promising this a long time. So it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food. How many people are invited? All people. What does it take? All you have to do is answer the, the invitation. Jesus said the invitation has gone out everywhere. Highways, byways, under the bushes, under the rocks. Everywhere they could find somebody. All you got to do is put on the wedding garment that's provided for you. You put on the wedding garment and you can come into the feast. What's the wedding garment signify? The righteousness of Christ. How do I put the righteousness of Christ on? The Bible says... Abraham believed God and what? It was accounted to him for righteousness. I believe what God says about me. I need his righteousness and I ask him, Lord, save me. Clothe me. Clothe me in your righteousness. Cover me in your righteousness. So the Lord of hosts will make a feast for all people. Anybody can come. But anybody won't. Some people still to this day would rather uh, reject. I've heard people say, even if you could prove to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that God existed, I would not worship him. Wow. Well, you're going to get what you want. You'll get what you want. You won't have to worship him. He says they're going to have a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. 
saying, man, I'm going to, I'm going to give the best. I'm going to, this is going to be the feast. This is the one you want to come to all the delights that he's going to provide for his people. But at the same time, he's providing those delights. There's destruction for all the nations who have rejected it. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to swallow up on this mountain, the covering that is cast over all people, the veil spread out over all nations. He's talking about the, the covering, the veil of oppression. The evil, the wickedness is everywhere, right? It's not just in one place. It's not only Russia that's evil. It's not only, you know, ISIS that's evil, folks. It's not somebody else out there. Our problem is right here inside of me. It's inside of you. It's not like they have some special evil pill that they're taking in. Fortunately, none of us take it. No, that's not how it works. We all have that within us. It's whether or not will you, will you take that wickedness that you have, like Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, will you declare it to God and ask God to cleanse you? And when you do, what did God do for Isaiah? He cleansed him. Isaiah spent five chapters saying, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. In chapter 6, what did he say? Woe to me. I'm just as messed up as all these people. Because I stand before a holy God, I don't have much to brag about. God, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a people of unclean lips. Cleanse me. That's what God does. He touches him and purges his sin. Those who will not do that, he says, he's going to deal with. And then what's the last enemy that's conquered? What does the Bible tell us? 1 Corinthians 15. What's the last enemy defeated? Death. The last enemy defeated in Revelation? Death. Death will be defeated. What does it declare here? He will swallow up death for how long? Forever, right? It's the ultimate defeat of death. Even now, death in the life of a believer has no power over you. When you die, where do you go? Absent from the body is what? present with the Lord so your death is just a doorway to Christ it's just being ushered into his presence that's it there's no power in death before you knew Christ there was power in death you die without Christ then what do you got now we got problems don't we but death is defeated in Christ and he says here he's going to swallow up death forever and the Lord God will this sounds familiar doesn't it wipe away Tears from how many faces? All faces. Everybody can everybody can can enjoy this moment with the Lord. Lord will wipe away all tears from the faces. Why? Because life is hard. Anybody ever wept? It's in their life on earth. Yeah, I long for the day when God can wipe all that away. We can wipe away those tears. He says he promises. Not only is he gonna is he gonna destroy death, swallow up death, but he's gonna wipe away tear from the faces. And not only is he gonna swallow death and wipe away their tears, he's gonna wipe out their reproach. He's gonna wipe out so his people have no reproach. Meaning, you know, I still will say, I'm a broken man, I do dumb stuff. But there's coming a day for me when my reproach will be washed away and I won't be that broken man no more. I'm that broken man now, but when I stand before God, 
When I stand before him, the battle between me and my sin nature is over. Hey, Jesus Christ died for my sin and he, he is the empowerment for me to live a life, right? I want to live a holy life before God. But in my desire to live a holy life before God, I still have failures. He's going to wipe away the reproach. No more failures, ever. No more. Deliverance, total deliverance. The reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. None, no failures left. And how do I know this is going to happen? What's he say next? For the Lord has. God ever said something that didn't happen? Oh, man. If the Lord said it, you can take it to the bank. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. This deliverance from all sorrow, the deliverance from all sin, the deliverance from all the things that oppress and hold us back. This is what he's talking about in, the, in, the, in, in Isaiah 25 as he sings this song, this hymn of deliverance. In Psalm 42.3, this is probably... Um, a couple of my favorite psalms here. It says, Psalm 42, 3, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Where is your God? Where is your God? But on the day of vindication, nobody's saying, Where is your God? And now they're saying, There is his God. And what's he doing? Wiping away the tears. Wiping away the tears. Psalm 56, 8, You have kept count of all my tossings, you put my tears in a bottle. Are they not in your book? The Bible is declaring that every time we ever wept, God cared. He kept the tears. You go to Israel with us, there's a couple of places you can go where they have this thing called a tear bottle, where the, the Jews would, would save their tears. It, it would uh, um, symbolize a, a life of sorrow, you know, and... And it ended up being uh, something that was very valuable to them. Well, here the Bible declares God keeps your tears. Everyone you ever cried, he said, I got them all. They all matter to him. He has a count of each and every one. Psalm 116 says, you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. This is what he's talking about. These are all the promises that God was saying that there will be a day. Here in Isaiah 25, he's talking about day, that day. In Psalm 126, 5, it says, Those who sow in tears will what? Reap in joy. Reap in joy. That's this life. This life is sowing in tears. But there's a day coming when we will reap in joy. No more tears. No more failure. No more suffering. Because we will be delivered just like... Judah is going to be delivered in the middle of Isaiah. Jeremiah 9, 1. Oh, that my head were waters, my eyes, a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. That was how Jeremiah the prophet thought of the, his, his, that's why he's called the prophet, of, uh, the weeping prophet of prophet of tears. He spends all his time crying for the people. Thus says the Lord in Jeremiah 31, 16. Keep your voice from weeping, your eyes from tears. For there is reward for your work, declares the Lord, for they shall come back from the land of the enemy. Jeremiah in despair, the people don't listen. God says, don't, you don't got to cry. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to redeem. I'm going to finish what I start. 
All of those things are such encouragement to us. And then ultimately, you know, all disgrace removed. The reproach removed from his people. He'll take it away from the earth. Why? Because God said he'd do it. The Lord has spoken. Also tells us where salvation comes from. Look at verse 9. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God and we have waited for him. For what? That he might save us. We've been waiting for this. Now, when the Bible talks about salvation, it uses, always uses the past tense. So when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we're saved. But there's three parts of our salvation. You know that, right? There's our justification, which is a, a statement that says the judge, God the judge, has declared you righteous. You didn't become righteous. God declared you righteous. You know the difference? The difference is standing guilty before the judge and the judge saying, you can go. We're not getting, we don't get what we deserve. That's what grace is. Yeah? Grace is God saying, I declare you righteous. Then we have sanctification, which is what? Our lives growing more holy. Right? Because that's what you're supposed to do if you're following Jesus. No? If you're following the devil, there'll be lots of problems. But if you're following Jesus, there ought to be an increase in holiness. Yes? A movement where our life is moving toward him. But finally, one day, there is going to be glorification. Where all my brokenness gets put off. All that gets put off when I see him face to face. When he once and for all saves me. I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. The Bible tells us about all three. So the idea is I'm justified, and when you're justified, you're saved. Sanctified, that's the work of salvation happening in my life in the present. And glorified, that's the work of salvation happening in the future. The final deliverance. We have waited for our God. And that day when you see God, don't we all want to see well done, good and faithful servant. You don't want to get to that day and go, man, you're a loser. That's not what you want to hear, is it? So if that's not what we want to hear, then perhaps our lives ought to be lived out in a, as a life of repentance, right? Confession, walking with God, walking with him. Fall down. The Bible says a righteous man falls how many times? Siete. Seven times. A righteous man falls seven times. But does what? Rises again. Yeah? Your failures are not final. We fail, we get up, we repent, we move on. Amen? We fail, we repent, we get up, we move on. Fail, repent, get up, move on. But one day you're going to stand before him and that failure is going out the window. Reproach is gone. No more battle with the old man. The old man was crucified with Christ, yes? And one day I am going to experience the true, the reality of that old man once and for all being ripped out of me. Ripped out, thrown away. We've waited for our God that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Rejoicing in the deliverance of, of our God. We've waited and we are glad when we see him. And then finally, the end of this song, it's a rejoicing over the final victory. Rejoicing over the final victory. It says, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain 
And Moab will be trampled down in his place, and straw is trampled in a dunghill. The Bible says in Psalms that Moab is a wash pot. Moab is a toilet bowl. That's like in today's vernacular. That's what wash pot means. Moab is a toilet bowl. Moab is a symbol of, a, of the people in opposition to God. You're, if you're with God, you're, you're described as those clothed in white robes. And if you're not, you're described as those people swimming around in the toilet bowl. Right? So it's not hard to, to distinguish the righteous from the wicked. So when he's talking about Moab, it's just a general term. A general term talking about fallen man, a uh, 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 rebellious man, man still lost in his trespasses and sin. It says Moab's going to be trampled down. What does the Bible say in Revelation when there's a new heaven and a new earth? Where will the wicked be? Are there going to be any wicked there? Where's going to be the, the, where are going to be the, the ones that we needed to have all our walls and fences and locked doors over? The Bible says there's not going to be none of them there. None of them. Moab's going to be trampled. He will spread out his hands in the midst as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. He's going to lay it all, it's all gone. The picture is like a swimmer, right? He's just going to take all that stuff and go, get it out of there. Purged. Gone. The high fortifications of his walls he'll bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground. All the the people, the pride, and the protection they thought they had apart from God. God's going to wash all that out. So when there's a new heaven and a new earth, there's no wicked there. How is there no wicked there? Because all wickedness of man has been purged. Just like Isaiah's was purged. Just like ours was purged, was declared. God declared, you're righteous. And that reality will happen when we see him face to face. I look forward to that day. I'm tired of battling with the old man. Don't you get tired of battling with the old man? That old old nagging voice that says, do this, and you listen? And then you shake your head afterward and say, why did I do that? Why is it that in a conversation, a lie will spring to your lips faster than the truth? That doesn't happen to you guys? Man, if I'm not quick, I, I, that lie will be half spoke before I can pull it back. And I don't even know why, why, are you, why am I lying? Come on. I call you at 6 in the morning. And I say, oh, I'm sorry, did I wake you? What do most of us do? Oh, no, no, I've been up for hours reading my Bible and praying. Yeah, right? Why does, it, why does a lie spring to our lips faster than the truth? Yes, I know. I'm going to call you all tomorrow at 5. And I'm going to catch you sleeping. You better, when I call you, say, man, Jackie, why are you calling so early? You woke me up. I don't know why it is, right? But there's a day when that's going to be gone, washed out. That it'll be the truth springing to our lips faster. There'll be no lie. There'll be no more of that. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and God's people dwelling in unity. That's the day that Isaiah is excited about, that he's singing about. But even as we look at that day, just remember that day is also a day of judgment, right? Because the wicked have been judged. And either I plead 
that for the blood of Jesus Christ, or I plead for my own blood, and my own blood is not going to do it. Right? Those who call on the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's, let's uh, pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. We can open your word. We can study. We can look on the pages. God, I pray that, that we can just begin to understand uh, the, the work of the prophets, the work of Isaiah, and what he's accomplishing as he lays out for us just the truth God declared before us. Lord, I pray that you help us, Lord, to see it, to lay hold of it, to make it our own. And that as we move forward, we realize we are a people who are dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And Lord, you have purged us. You've justified us. We put our trust in you. But now you're asking, will you go for me? Will you stand over there and tell them people they're wrong? Will you do what's necessary in whatever areas that God's calling you to? Will you be the watcher on the wall, the man standing in the gap? Lord, I pray that, that, that our answer will be, Hey, Lord, I see a hungry man. I pray that I'll feed him. I see a naked man. I pray that I'll clothe him. I hear about a man needing visitors in prison. I pray that I will visit him. I pray, God, that I will be your hands and feet. Not sloppy agape, just washing over. God, just being truthful. Truth with love. God, I pray that we might be the conscience of our nation, because our nation needs one. Lord, I pray that you would be magnified and glorified in this place as we look to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.